Well, take your Bible, if you would, turn to Joshua chapter 2. Again, I'm just going to celebrate that we just, we got out of chapter 1. We made it. But there is so much more to come. And when you think about uh, this morning as we dive back into this particular book in a message I've entitled, Rahab's Risk, Bargaining with the Spies. So much that happens in the life of the conquest seems like some kind of espionage story of some conquest that all of a sudden goes on to say, what is God doing? How is he going to accomplish the things that he said he would accomplish? And we, we, are, we are challenged to stand back in awe of this living God who does wonders, who does things that no man can do, but only things that God himself can do. And we're reminded that as we walk through the book of Joshua this morning. So if you're there, uh, and, and turn to Joshua chapter 2. We're going to read the first 14 verses and just get ourselves acquainted with the, with the text that we're going to be in this morning. Then we're going to come back and unpack a little bit more of, of what this has to teach us this morning. Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. He says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two, my, two, two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, and especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men whom you, who have come to you, who entered your house, where they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to close at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof, and, he, and she hid them with the stalks of flasks that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord... The Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord has dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Now, if you notice in our songs this morning, uh, this deliberate theme, we start out with a song like, Who Can Stop the Lord Almighty? It seems like a song of the conquest, isn't it? Like The whole theme, the whole idea and tone of the book of Joshua is this, this idea that there is a God 
with the people of Israel that is, is a God like no other God of the ancient Near Eastern culture. Ancient Near Eastern culture were so uh, emphasized with pagan idolatry that there was a sense in which all these pagan idols were just men blown big. But there was something that was different with the God of Israel. This was a God who would, who would fight for them and he would reveal himself to them out of love and kindness and holiness. We sing things like, who can stop the Lord Almighty then to move, to reflect on the very holiness of the God of heaven. See, the conquest is not just simply about a people just receiving the promise of the God of heaven that he had given to them and that he wouldn't go back on his promises. This is about a people who in every way, shape, and form in, the, in their existence seem to come in contact with a holy, righteous, just, all-powerful God that would hold them accountable. I was talking with somebody this morning uh, how I am so astounded as, I, as I've studied the book of Joshua that, that people of faith become often very quickly objects of wrath. You know, sometimes we think to ourselves, well, I can claim and name the name of Jesus Christ, but I can kind of frivolously go about be, being a Christian and living my life as if it somehow means very little. I think if you came into contact with most of the Israelite people who wandered the wilderness on many occasions, they would say to you, do not disobey the Lord Almighty. There is a gravity that the people entered and, and walked in the wilderness with. There is a gravity as they come to the brink of the promised land that now was heightened to such a degree that they would have to stand, each one of themselves, each family, each clan, each individual, each priest, each officer, and they would ask themselves this question, will I serve the Lord Almighty? And if I'm caught not serving this great God, this holy, just, benevolent God, what will become of me and what will become of my family? No doubt they were taking a risk analysis saying, what do I do here? <laughs> I could certainly go astray, I could certainly not obey, but what will become of me? Well, I think this just begs us in reality, the question for us as Christians today as we read this, to say, do you live your life here on earth with a level of gravity of the holiness and sovereignty of the almighty, all just, all powerful God who sees every thought and action and motive by which you do what you do? Can you honestly, can I honestly say, I'll just sin and that's no big deal? See, the conquest is here to show you a God who is incredible in his love, in his benevolence, but is a God who holds us righteously accountable because he's a God filled with justice. We encounter this particular idea as we walk through, uh, as we walk through this text this morning that God providentially prepares the hearts of people to believe and escape destruction. You know, in some degree or another, in the providence of God, can't you see yourself fit into this story? I mean, if, if, if you think to yourself, what do you really deserve, by the way? 
I mean, do you think you honestly deserve the house you have, the car you drive, the, the health you experience, all of these wonderful things? Do you really honestly think, he owes that to me? He owes me uh, uh, favors of saying, you know, like, look what you've got here. See, God has gone before each one of us. And according to John 6, which says, no man comes to the Father unless the Spirit of God draws him. He has gone before you, believer, so that you may escape the destruction that is to come. In the life of the people of Joshua, you could only imagine of, of, the, of the land of Canaan that people were sitting in fear and wonder as to what this God would do. He's providentially preparing hearts of people, even people's hearts, who are unlikely, you would think, to receive it when they come to a person like Rahab. You know, let that be a lesson to us, even as we start, that oftentimes some of the most unlikely people that you and I will share the gospel with, and we think to ourselves, they are not listening to anything I'm saying. You have no idea who's listening and who's not. I've often been amazed as a pastor over the years where someone would come uh, at the end of the service and I thought they were sleeping. And they would say, I heard this and they quoted exactly the quote that I said, something that they paid attention to. I was like, that is just befuddles me. I thought you were sleeping the whole time. Like, no, I got you. I got what you were saying. See, we don't realize at times, even as parents, how, are our kids listening? Are they picking up the things that we're saying? And I'll be astounded when my children at different times say, Dad, I remember when you said, and I'm like, what? Something stuck? The reality is, is the God of heaven is constantly about giving his people reminders. Sometimes those reminders come out of various blessings, and many times those reminders come out of reflecting back of things that have occurred so that they will never occur again. He is providentially at work, sovereignly guiding all the orchestrations of the earthly world to bring it to an end in one day where his son, Jesus Christ, will sit on the throne in the promised land of Israel as king of kings and lord of lords. It's going to happen. He is preparing hearts of people until that day comes. And we ought to be about the business of being willing to go out and share the gospel and the good news so that as many can escape the destruction that is to come will be saved. Don't shy away from people of any particular perspective or habit or circumstance that, that would say, oh, I don't know if I'm going to witness to them. People need Christ, no matter what persuasion or choice of living that they're happening to being uh, choosing at the moment, if they do not see Christ, they need him. That is their biggest need. And all the other stuff God will unfold to them if genuine repentance and faith takes hold. Now notice this. Now, like I said, uh, as we walk through this book, it seems like some kind of a scene in a storyline of chapter after chapter after chapter in the, in the conquest. And you notice this morning, we're going to talk about one of these chapters. Now we're in chapter two. 
Okay? Uh, here we have it. The spies, the lies, and how to survive. Chapter 2. That's what you got in front of you. Notice what's going on in the life of these particular spies. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent the two men secretly from Shittim, and the spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. Now, before we go by too fast, because we don't want to rush too fast and not get all the things God wants us to get, let me park on this particular location in which they happen to be camping at this particular moment. This place, in the Campton, they camped in the plains of Moab in the northern part, which is called the place, they're called Shittim. If you go back, and this was, by the way, a helpful reminder of those things, what not to do as we talk about the spies, now just notice the irony and the foreshadowing of, Lee, of, of sending these two spies out. Now, just pause for a minute if, if, if you happen to know and read your Old Testament and you realize, let's see, the first time they went in to spy the land, they sent 12, and now Joshua secretly sends two. Now, maybe draw your attention, maybe perhaps Joshua's thinking, last time we sent 12, it didn't go so well. There was two of us who came back faithful, Maybe I'm just going to go with two. Maybe that's more providential, Lord. Okay, we don't seem to get any indicators from the text or any other particular way that this was some kind of a special endeavor. Joshua was just trying to have a scenario where he could, the spies could be sent, they spy out the land, and they could come back and it wouldn't happen. But it does kind of enter your mind to think, well, last time this didn't go so well and Joshua was sending less men. Now, one of the potential reasons for that, possibly by sending only two, is that they're seven miles away on the eastern part of the Jordan. Think about the, all of the land of promise is now on heightened alert. It's the time of the season where the Jordan River has now began to overflow. It's the time of the harvest. People are bringing in the harvest. He sends out these two spies out of a place that everybody knows they're camping because Unbeknownst, you just can't hide two million people very adequately. They happen to be there. And so Joshua, as he comes and says to the officers in our previous text, go, prepare yourself. You're going to be close to entering the promised land in tandem behind the scenes. It's almost like you always get that story like, meanwhile, back at, meanwhile, back at the camp, Joshua's sending spies. And he sends two spies to sp specifically target the city of Jericho. But they are camped in a place called Shittim. Now, they had been there for quite some time. Now, uh, take, if you would, uh, take your fingers, flip back to the book of Numbers for a moment, because this place is not some insignificant place that has some insignificant background or backdrop to the people entering the Promised Land. In Numbers chapter 22, uh, is where we find this story. But let me, as you're reading there, let me just prompt your mind and, and remind you of various stories of the people of Moab. Now, if you can trace back the people of the Moabite people, you understand that the, the, the Moabites were a descendant of, the, of, the son, of, the, of, of a son that was born to Lot in a very terrible situation of Lot and his daughters. And the oldest daughter bears a son out of this terrible situation, and they are called the Moabite people. Now, I just think it's important when we think about the Moabite people and other people groups, by the way, 
that we realize that God, as he enters the people into the, to the conquest, whether it's the east side or the west side of the Jordan, that there are lessons and things that were not taught generationally. And the Moabite people were wicked people. They come, and you remember this story. Now all of a sudden, the people are camped at Shittim. In Numbers chapter 22, notice, uh, here's what it says. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people, because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear for the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us. As the ox licks up the grass of the field, so Balak, the son of, so Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Bethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. You remember that story, that real interesting story where all of a sudden the, the Moabites and the Midianites all of a sudden rally together to make an alliance, and they hear of a Gentile diviner or someone who was a worshiper of pagan gods who became a false prophet to some degree, and he was a false prophet, and they send out to him and say, come and prophesy against the people of Israel. You know that funny story? I mean, I, I think every time I get to this place in, my, in, in a Bible reading of the story, and all of a sudden when that donkey talks to him, I think that just had to blow him away. I mean, I don't even know how that sounded. I'm not going to try to replicate it. But you think to yourself, the donkey's saying, what are you doing? I mean, here, all of a sudden, the Midianites make an alliance with the Moabite people because what are they concerned about? That this people would come and overwhelm them. God had went, who went before them? See, the God of heaven went before him. Cast your gaze down, uh, down to Numbers chapter 22, verse 7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for the divination in their land, and they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And you remember, every time Balaam came to try to pronounce a curse before him, it ended up being a blessing three different times. I mean, I'm thinking Balaam saying to himself, this is not working the way I thought it would work. God was superintending to intervene in the lives of his people. By the way, don't think, don't think that we don't have a God that is continually intervening on your behalf. He is going before you in so many ways that you will only know, perhaps may you'll never know, and yet he is guarding you, protecting you, and keeping you every step of the way. We fast forward to Numbers chapter 25. You notice this. In verses 1 to 3, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifice to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate, and they bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked himself to Baal at Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. 
Here the people of Israel are now camped in a place named Shittim, sending out two spies. Having been there for a while, as they were preparing to enter into the promised land, they had been there long enough for the story of Balaam to take place. And when they realized that the prophet Balaam and the God of the people of Israel would not be coerced, he would not be reckoned with, he would not curse his people, they thought to themselves, well, what are we going to do? Well, if you fast forward a little bit further to Numbers chapter 31 and verse 16, here's what's said. Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now notice what would happen. This is what occurred at this particular moment, at this particular place. Everybody that was in the camp of Israel would have understood this reference to Shittim and the place that they were leaving from. Balaam comes, and now all of a sudden, now I think partly this is what we understand and see. Balaam was kind of a conniving guy, and we begin to, under, we begin to think, well, is this a good guy? Is this a bad guy? He seems to be saying certain things that seem to be coming from God. Well, they were coming from God, but they were coming from a, a heart of Balaam who was a real, genuine convert to the Jewish faith, to the God of Israel. No, they were coming from a conniving individual who was about to just make some money on this whole, this whole curse or blessing routine. That's what that would often happen. In Numbers chapter 31, what we recognize is that Balaam did something like this. Although God stopped him from cursing the people and would only allow a blessing to take place, he was still in concert with the king of Moab and the alliance of the Midianites. And so he thought to himself, well, this God's not going to let me curse these people, and I want to curse them, but I don't seem to be able to, because every time the word of the Lord comes to me, I seem to be saying a blessing, which is exactly the opposite of what they want. And here's, I think, in the background, he's thinking, and there's no money in that. Because if I say the wrong thing, when they want me to say this, they're not going to pay me. So at the advice of Balaam, by the way, in Numbers 31, he devised a different plan. A plan, by the way, that would become remembered by all the people of Israel. It's mentioned in Nehemiah. It is mentioned in Malachi. It is mentioned in 1 Peter. It's mentioned in Revelations chapter 2 in the, in the church at Pergamum. Well, what is it that he's reminding them of? Well, Balaam comes and he says, you know what? We can't curse them. So what can we do? We can pollute them. And if we can welcome them, let's send down our ladies, let's sound, send people to them and see if they begin to, to eat all the things that are sacrificed to the pagan God. And we welcome them in and they start beginning to have relations with our women and that's exactly what happened at Shittim. And as a result of this, all of a sudden, God saw what was going on he saw the very holiness and the treachery of what was happening with the people. They began to go out, uh, go out and they were messing around with the daughters of Moab and they were taking the food that were sacrificed to idols and in a sense, sitting on the brink of the promised land going, in your face, God. And God sends a plague amongst the people as a result of this in which 24,000 people die. 
so interesting in the account of Numbers chapter 22 that all of a sudden what stopped the plague? This is a different plague than another one that had went on in the Old Testament. But in this particular plague, you have people who were so outright in your face, I'm going to do what I want to do, what feels good, whenever I want, that all of a sudden the story is recounted in Numbers 22 that all of a sudden you read on and an individual in the life of the children of Israel comes out with a, with a, with a woman and in the face of Moses. I mean, think about this picture. Moses is still alive and in the face of Moses takes the woman and trots off to his house to go do the things that shouldn't be done. Eliezer, the son of the high priest, sees what is going on and he is filled with righteous indignation. We don't often see this and think about this in the, in the face of, of the priests of Israel and all of a sudden Eliezer goes and he grabs his spear and he says, I know exactly what to do with people who want to whore themselves with the other nations who do not serve the God of, of Israel, the one living and true, holy and righteous, omnipresent, all-powerful God. And if we let this go on, what will become of us? He walks and breaks into the house where these two are at and he runs a spear through both of them to send a message that you will not do this in the face and before the eyes of the living God and discourage the people of God. Don't you leave something like that going, yikes, I guess I should be serious a little bit about my holiness. The spies... The irony in the story is the spies left a situation like this. And doesn't it just all of a sudden prod your mind of some, uh, all of a sudden when they go into one who's Rahab the harlot? And think, we're thinking, here's chapter three. <laughs> we're in trouble. But an entirely different scenario unfolds. Those spies left, the people of Israel left, with the backdrop of Shittim in the rearview mirror going, 24,000 of us are dead. Even Joshua, in that account, commands his officers and his men. I mean, think about how the gravity of this. He looks at his men and he grabs all of his leaders and he says, Men, he says, you know what men among your company who are whoring with the Moabite people Go take care of it. And his men are called to go and strike down the other men who have now served foreign gods. Men who were among them. They leave that place having been reminded of the holiness and righteous wrath of the Almighty God. When these spies were set out, I, I don't think... You know, I, I think that having that experience in the rearview mirror, probably they looked at it, they looked at themselves, even as they perhaps entered into Rahab the harlot's house, because I don't think they, I think they probably knew where they were going. And they're saying to themselves, let's not forget. Can I just say to you as a Christian, please don't forget the holy, awe-inspiring, powerful God that you serve who gazes into your heart and mind to bring you and I to an accountability that when we ourselves do not take seriously the things of God, there is consequences for it. 
We can't go through the conquest and hear the people go in and take out all these people of the land, which we'll come back to, and not be left with some serious sense of gazing into the deepest reservoirs of our soul and saying, am I holy as God desires me to be holy? Well, the mission was to spy out the land. They have Shatim in their rearview mirror, and now they're supposed to go in. And they want to talk, about, especially they want to think about Jericho. Now just think conquest in the, in the sense of strategy for a moment. Because it wasn't just the fact that God said, go in and take the land. There was, there was still a will and still a commander, and they would know what to do. They had a strategy of how to fight battles. Now, think about it on the eastern side of the Jordan. You can't be fighting two battles on two different fronts all at the same time. So God goes before him, and he destroys the king of Sihon and Og in the northern part of the eastern side of the Jordan. Then he is able to have them uh, take care of the issue of the Moabite people, so now they're not going to be fighting on the eastern front. But now they're camped about 14 miles on the eastern, on the eastern or seven miles on the east. You get across the Jordan, and Jericho's about seven miles, which you can see, and off into the distance, you see this kind of picture of, of the people. You see the rising Judean wilderness and hill country that would eventually lead to Jerusalem. And there it is, Jericho, the old Jericho, tucked right there on the corner that became what has been known in the New Testament as the City of Palms. A place of an oasis, the place where not very far that David would run to the springs of Engedi to hide from Saul in the caves of the Judean hill country and wilderness. The spies especially go to Jericho because what's happening is if you can't fight all battles at once and now the eastern border, people aren't going to attack you from there. Now the idea was, and we'll see this in the conquest, he's, he comes with an idea, whether it was given from God or the strategy in the providence of God, he takes the large, one of the largest cities of the land in Jericho, the most fortified, one of the fortified cities that was one of the great cities of the land, and he attacks it being in the very middle of the country. And then he works his way south, and then he'll come back and work his way north. See, because you see what's going on just in a foreshadowing is that now he's, he and the people of Israel, as they come, they start the southern conquest. And everybody in the north, all the kings of the north are making alliances like, we are next. <laughs> Make no doubt about it. They are coming for us. Joshua hits Jericho and he sweeps all the way to the south. And he defeats all the east and the southern part. And now he'll go to the north as we walk through. But here are the spies going into the area of Jericho. And of all places they would go, remember, this place is shut up. People are inside. The walls are fortified. These walls, and we'll talk about it once we get to Joshua 6 and get into the battle of Jericho. We'll talk a little bit more about the walls. But at least at this point, they're guarding these wall, these, this gate quite heavily. They have two million people over there. They've watched what happened to Sihon and Og. Now all of these things are occurring. They're watching these and they're watching various moments, and these two spies come in to the place of Rahab, the harlot. Now, in some sense, if we think about secrecy, I mean, it kind of goes without saying when you read the story, at some degree, you're like, 
he sent out secret spies. They get to Rahab's house, and then the king sends for the spies. Like, something went wrong. This was not so secret. See, but in God's providence, he had them enter very quickly into the house of Rahab, which when you think about her story and you think about who she was, which we'll come back to next week, just the fact that they're entering a prostitute's house. I mean, even now, even, even at this point, you're thinking, you've gone from Shittim, and now you're going to go here. I mean, isn't there another house on the wall that we could go to, like any other house? And what does that tell you? That God superintended providentially to have these spies encounter this person because he was transforming this harlot's heart. Who but God can do this stuff like that? Who but God can all of a sudden take the heart of a person who is an idolater and can change it to be a repentant follower of the true and living God? I'll tell you what, he's taken this heart of this idolater who wants to do his own thing and wanted to do his own thing and he changed it. He grabbed me. He said, you're not going that way. And I repented of my sins and I took Jesus Christ as my savior and oh, he has been so kind to me since, even in the midst of varying degrees of unfaithful responses over the course of my life. And this God who is kind and merciful and benevolent comes to me over and over again as he comes to you and he's willing for us to come to him through confession and repentance and restore the relationship that we enjoy with the living God. These spies come to her house and it's so interesting in the course of the story that we would see them come to her. And now she unfolds this as we look into the land. It's kind of interesting because you look at this and here they come across from Shittim to Jericho and all through the midst of this, of course, remember... The Jordan River is overflowing. So this is why the mention of the fords, by the way. Because during the time that the, the Jordan River would overflow, it was really hard to get to and from to the other side. So they built these various fords so that people could go across and, and get to and from different places from the east on the western side of the Jordan. So when the, when the spies go out... The natural conclusion, and of course Rahab picks up on this, is chase them, and then it says that they went as far as the fords. Because it's an easy place to track who's coming and who's going. Rahab instead hides the spies. It's very interesting in this entire account because as they walk through, Rahab does something that we look and we grapple with and wrestle with. Notice, she comes, and because we read it, I'll just paraphrase it. All of a sudden, they come in, and secrecy was no longer as secret as the two spies had thought. They come into the house of Rahab the harlot, and Rahab must have known that the king had sent messengers to her house because she hid the messengers up on the roof. Now, this becomes really important in the sense of the harvest because I want you to realize uh, what's coming in Jericho as a foreshadowing. They brought in all the harvest. If all of a sudden you were going to be ransacked by another, by another nation, and it's harvest season, uh, you're probably not thinking to yourself, should we leave the wheat in the fields or should we bring it in? You're going, bring it in because we may be 
we may have to stay here a while. So they bring it all in, and all the harvest is done, and now some of those, the flax of that is drying on the top of the roof because they would dry it in the sun. If you know anything about the, uh, the Judean wilderness and the area of the Dead Sea is you can dry stuff because it's that hot. She has a whole mound of these, and she puts them on top of these spies, and they're hiding out on the top of the roof. Seems like an easy way to figure out Okay, now what are we going to do? The king of Jericho sends his messengers, and he says, bring out the two men who came to me. Now, here's, here's what we wrestle with. She just outright tells a bold-faced lie. And then it seems to be celebrated all throughout the New Testament. Like, imagine that. Like, you can lie, and then somehow it's okay? What do we do with that? See here, all of a sudden, she says to him, after these messengers come, and she tells another lie. You notice how this works, right? Lies end up bringing more lies. Oh, well, oh, those men. Well, I don't really know who they are. You think she knew who they were? I think so, because she hit them. She knew where they were from. They said, bring them out. She said, oh, right before the gate shut, I watched him scurry on out the gate. And so if you, I mean, think about it. If you run real fast, you might catch them. I think the messenger's are like, okay, we won't search the house. I mean, does that not say to you that something bigger is going on in the backdrop? These messengers don't go in and ransack her entire house to figure out who these men were and whether or not she was lying. They just take her word for it and head out the door. Maybe, maybe, I'm just guessing here, that God's providence and sovereignty in protecting these two spies had something to do with it. See, God is always in the business of revealing his sovereign hand because when we get to the conquest, remember when we first started this journey? that the conquests are the acts of the living God who happens to be done by a chosen leader from the living God to a people group that was chosen by the living God. And when this God says, I'm going to bring my people, my spies, and I'm going to bring them back with a message that Joshua told them to spy out, and especially Jericho, they need a message, and they've got to take something back, and I'm going to make sure that it happens. And I'm going to do it through some of the most unlikely people some of the most unsavory people who have some of the most unsavory occupations and they're going to do things like bold-faced lies and I'm going to bring good out of all of it. There is no one, believers, that I know who can take account of all things going on in the world, every human action, every king's word, every parliament's decision, every, every election cycle, there is no one who could account for all of those things and go, watch what I can do. I'm going to show you something. And that is what God is in the business of constantly doing in earth history. Just at the moment when you think we're in dire straits that nothing could better, would, would come out of something good, God goes, okay, Watch. I'm going to use this person and that person, and they might not even be believers. And we as believers stand back and say, oh, I know what we say. Oh, no, we're going to ruin. 
No, believers say something different, don't they? They go, God must be up to something. Because when God allows whatever God allows, then we have to sit back and say, then he must have a plan of which he's not made me privy to. And we sit back as people of faith and say, I trust you. I trust what you're doing. I trust where you're going with this. I trust that you will exalt your name in the process. Well, it's very challenging as we think of various things like this. What does the scripture say about things like lying? Seems to be a pretty, since this is celebrated, I at least think that we have to talk about it. Well, what does it say? Well, Proverbs says this in Proverbs 12, 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. And you have to ask yourself, is God pleased with Rahab's lie? Is he pleased with any lie? Now, I mean, think about Ephesians chapter 4 where it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, do you get any sense in the Old Testament or the New that you get these scenarios where it's like, it's not okay to lie except for these given reasons. Do you ever get that anywhere? You get it nowhere. It's always wrong to lie. There's never a justification for lying. In fact, if, if, you would read the, if you read the text carefully, Rahab is not commended for the lie. She is commended for her fear of God, although she lies. Let me just sit on that for a second. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you probably lied before sometime in your life, haven't you, Christian? even as a Christian? And what does God do with people who are in those scenarios? He is kind, he's gracious, he allows repentance and forgiveness and a cleansing. We don't do, we don't do what Paul says, shall, shall we sin then so grace may abound? So let's go out this week and be a bunch of liars. We're going to see God's grace this week. No, we don't do that. What we say is we stay away from lying. See, that the challenge is, is the truth is very particular. It doesn't give a justification for wrongdoing. In fact, when you read historical books in the Bible, hermeneutically speaking, remember, historical accounts don't just, they record events. Just because it's in the Bible, a sin that Rahab lied is in the Bible, that is not a justification hermeneutically to say, well, they lied in the Bible. I mean, that's equivalent to saying, well, you lied, so I thought I'd lie. Well, that never is going to work because God is a God of truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And in fact, it even says something even further in the New Testament that those who are liars will be facing complete eternal damnation. It doesn't mean because liars can't get into heaven, but those who lie and are unrepentant of their sin and continue on lying and believing that that's what they can do in the face of a holy and righteous God, God says, that isn't happening. Because I'm holy and I have to be just. Well, it goes even beyond that. Is it ever right to do the wrong thing in order to accomplish a good thing? Well, like... I wanted to lie to them because it's their birthday and I didn't want to know there was a surprise. I mean, isn't there a better way to say it or set it up so you don't have to lie? 
See, don't do a wrong thing in order to conceal something that would be a right thing. Look at your heart and say, I want to be a person of truth. Truth matters at all costs because the living God sees what I'm trying to do. Truth really matters. I think this game ringing in their ears as we think about this because we were here just not so long ago. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. It's not like, except these scenarios, you can have good success and lie. See, this was ringing in their ears. No, that's not right. Now, were the spies thankful? Now, they didn't lie. <laughs> like, glad she lied for us. <laughs> We're not going to stand accountable for that one. But in God's providence, he uses unlikely people to accomplish things that he had promised over the course of, of his determination. Now, I think it also challenges us with this. What would you do if you were in a situation like that? I mean, maybe I'm crazy as I study the Bible and I think, what is a scenario that that would happen to me? And if I were in a situation where I were trying to harbor and, and, and appreciate life and keep people from, keep someone from dying, and they said, tell me where they are, I'd be like, I, I don't think I would say, uh, you know, hey, they're in the closet down the hall, first door on the right. They're waiting for you. But I also don't think I would want to say, you know, they might be up in the attic when they're down in the basement. Now, in the midst of that intense moment, I know we all think to ourselves, what do we do? Do we say, like, in a quick moment of our assessment, like, God will forgive me. No, they're not there at all. Or do we say, nothing. And rest on the on the shoulders of a living God who's all-powerful to protect people in ways that we could never protect, even if we decided to lie in order to protect him. He didn't need my lie in order to protect people he cares about. We have to be serious about sin no matter what level that comes. And we can't give a justification. And I don't think that's what's going on here in the text. The Bible is not giving Rahab a justification, but she is commended as... Now, I don't know about you, We'll talk a little bit more about this next week, but I don't know if you were a lady and this was your occupation prior to coming to faith in Christ that you would really appreciate to be known for the rest of your life as Rahab the harlot. And like, Rahab who? Oh, the harlot. Yes, I know who you are. Like, that would not be the thing that you would want to be known for, would it? And yet it is used in the New Testament to remind you of the kind of people that God redeems from the darkest individuals who are doing some of the darkest, immoral type things, and he goes, I can transform that person's heart in a way no one else can. Oh, and if that's you and you're here this morning and you say, I need that transformation. If he can do it with someone like this, he can do it with anybody. Be strong and courageous in the, in the course of your life. Here they come, and the spies, and, and it moves us from all of these, the spies that they have, all the way to uh, the lies that they will face. Now, we get to this point. Now, Rahab's asking herself, how do I survive this? 
I know destruction is coming and we are going to be wiped out. The, the kings on the eastern side, they were wiped out. Now what do we do? Now you notice this. She tells them this lie. They go out and do it. And then she's waiting for them to go. The doors of the gate shut. And she's probably being really careful at this point. She heads up to the top of her roof. And she expresses this particular conviction, which I, I think is quite fascinating. Because she had already brought them there. Look in verse 7 of Joshua chapter 2. So the, so the men pursued after them all the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut. And look at verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land are melting away before you for we have heard all kinds of miraculous things God is doing. Now I think in some sense, when she, uh, when she came up to the spies and said, and said that statement, I know the Lord has given you the land, like this wasn't new news to the spies. This was a confirmation of their journey as spies and they were supposed to come back to Joshua with a message. What do we think about Jericho? And it wasn't just about strategy, because once you get to Joshua 6, I mean, the strategy of walking around the, 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 the walls of Jericho and then blowing your horns and hoping the thing would fall down because God tells you to do it, I mean, that kind of strategy is unheard of in the ancient Near Eastern land. You kill people, you tear down their walls, and you destroy them, and you take all and you plunder everything. But here, she comes and says, I know the Lord has given you the land. That was, by the way, what, what they began to understand her initial conviction. The Lord has done this for you. And the fear has fallen upon us. I mean, just re- let me reference a couple, of, uh, a couple of texts that just help you realize that God was working far before this. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 27, it says, it says this, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25, this day I will put the dread and the fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall fear the, who shall fear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Deuteronomy eleven twenty five. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that it shall tread as he promised you. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I was one of those spies laying under the flax, kind of going, man, are we going to get caught? And now all of a sudden, this Rahab the harlot comes out and says, psst, I want to tell you something. <laughs> like, they don't know what they're getting into yet. Is she going to turn him in? What's going to happen? She at least hides him. That's a good thing. And then she comes up to him and says, I know your God has given you the land and the fear of you and the people. And now when she says that, it's the fear of the people's God. Okay, take note of that. It wasn't the people. It was the God of the people. See, as they walked through, they, she, she said this, we have heard of the mighty acts that have happened. Whose mighty acts? I don't think Joshua or the spies were walking away from there going, hey, let me tell you a little story about some things we did just recently. They're saying, here's the acts of the almighty God. Now, just take note of this. When the God of heaven acts in the way that he does, doing miraculous things, they will be remembered for generations. 
And that's what's going on here. We've heard how you dried up the Red Sea, how you defeated uh, Sihon and Og. And now she's saying, you, you've come to us. And notice how quickly, in the course of events, in Joshua chapter 2, verse 12, it says, now then, here's what she says. She bargains with them. Please swear to me by the Lord. I wonder who she wondered who was in control. <laughs> it was like, could you just tell me? No, swear to me by the Lord the God who does these kind of acts, that will live. Because as I've dealt kindly with you, you please deal kindly with my father's house, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said, our life for yours. I mean, wow. I mean, here's something that's quite remarkable to me, applicationally speaking. When God transforms the heart of an unbelieving person, no matter what their spiritual debauchery is, one of the most immediate fruits that you begin to, to sense is, what about my family? I am looking for that even as I look and people come to faith in Jesus Christ and it's so remarkable that one of the first things that comes out of, of Rahab the harlot's mouth is, I gotta tell my family. If you're here and you have unbelieving family members and you're not telling them about the acts of the living God. Tell them about the gospel. They need Jesus Christ. Make, allow that to be a portion of the fruit of your genuine conversion that you are caring about the lost. And she says, can I have my, my, my father and my mother and their families and all their children? One event of a decision of a conviction that God is the God of heaven and no one else can rule except for him. This one choice in a moment of time, in a moment of desperation, changed the course of Rahab's life and likely a number of her family members when they came in and what did they find? That they brought out all of her household who were saved in Joshua 6 that we'll come to. One decision can change the course of events for so many people. Make that be a response in the fruition of your genuine conversion, Christian. Go tell the world about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your coworker, your neighbors, your school friends. Try it at lunchtime. Try to figure out how to go somewhere with them. Tell them about, about Jesus Christ. Use the bridge track. Use any track. Use the Bible. Use any measure possible to tell them you need the God of heaven to redeem your soul that's lost in sin apart from which you will, you will be eternally separated from a God who loves you and cares for you and sent his son for you. Let's be about that kind of work. As we think about this, we think how to survive. Rahab understood it. We cling to the acts of the living God in faith in that God alone can save. That was the only way Rahab and her family were coming out alive to a people that had been commissioned in the conquest to destroy and bring to destruction various components of this land. And she understood it and said, you are, your God is the God of heaven above and on earth below. No one can stand before him. Well, what do we learn from this? I'll tell you what, one of the things we, some of the things we better learn have to be in reference to our God, isn't it? If these acts of the conquest are in reference to our God, let's learn this. God is in the business of redeeming people, so don't forget that. 
I know I hear a lot of Christian talk about the debauchery in the world and all kinds of various components of LGBTQ plus and whatever other thing that goes on that people choose as various components of lifestyle. And I've watched Christian people, by the way, look at groups of people who do certain things and say, well, I don't want to be contaminated. I don't want to be, I don't want to be associated with. But don't all people need Jesus Christ? no matter what their choice of sin. We can't be afraid to go and sit down, as Jesus often did, with tax collectors and sinners to say, bringing them the truth that can free them, by which is the only way that they will ever do anything else, is if they are freed from their sin. Because that's who we were. We were just like them caught in our trespasses and sin, like sheep who had gone astray until a kind shepherd came and went out for a lost sheep. That's you and me. God is in the business of redeeming people, so we ought to be in the business of sharing that redeeming truth. God is also in the business, Christian, of making his name known. Don't forget it. If these spies and any of the people of Israel were to say to themselves, look what we did, they would be forsaken. It is about God, and the story of your life has to be the same. Let it be about God. Let about you, it be about you making his name known. Don't be like the people who were at Shittim, where Balaam devised a plan to pollute them because he couldn't destroy them and you allow your own soul in your own Christian walk to be polluted by the world. Doing things, listening to things, acting on things that are so against the very things of God. Keep his holiness in view and his righteousness in view so that you don't become an object of his righteous wrath. He doesn't need us. He wants to exalt himself because he alone will reign. And he is setting himself up for a land, in a land that they would have, that would one day sit on the throne, his son, who would come as the suffering Messiah of Isaiah 9, of whose kingdom there would be no end. As we get further, we're going to leave Rahab here. We're going to come back to her next week and, and, and talk a little bit about some of the things of what, of what God does with an individual in her circumstance and what he does with her. And we're going to remind ourselves that God is God in heaven above and on earth below. His, his goal is to exalt himself. Our goal is to live faithfully and holy and righteously in the eyes of this, of this God. Share this truth. It is the only way a culture can be saved is to find the truth of Jesus Christ and repent of their sins and turn to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We look at this account and we are astounded in the way in which your providential hand guided these two spies to a very particular house on a very particular night to hear a very specific message from one who was an unlikely, unsavory character in occupation. And yet you teach us something about that you come to save people no matter what the sin they happen to be caught in. 
because you are a God of kindness and grace, a God of mercy and love who cares for each and every one of us. Thank you for doing that and help us as we reflect on you in song. In your name we pray, amen.